Tonight, we're continuing in a series on the two letters of Peter, one of Jesus' friends and followers. Uh, and we're looking at the first of Peter's two letters, which we started last week and will be in for the next several weeks. And uh, what, we want, what I'm going to do tonight um, is to focus on the second half of chapter 1. That's 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Uh, but before we do that, what I want to actually start out with is something we didn't do last week. And that is, I'm going to give you an overview of this entire book. Uh, I want to look at what this book of 1 Peter is all about, uh, what are some of the major themes, uh, what do you need to know so that you can go back and actually read this book on your own and have it all make sense. Um, so we're going to do that tonight. Just as we launch into that, uh, let me just encourage you again um, just to come into this time with just sort of a heart posture of, of wanting to receive, of, of wanting to sit at Jesus' feet, uh, to hear from him. You know, when when... when a person in my role is doing their job right, you're going to walk away tonight and think, man, you know, it wasn't about what he said. It wasn't about how he presented. It wasn't about like how polished and prepared all that was. But no, it's a matter of Jesus saying something through his word and no matter who the speaker is. So um, let me just pray for us right now that this would just be a time where that could happen. Uh, Lord, I want to come before you and just admit that I don't have what it takes um, to share uh, your truth uh, from Scripture this evening. Um, Lord, I, I, I can't change anyone's heart. I can't change anyone's mind. Um, I'm totally powerless to do that. But Lord, your Holy Spirit is here, um, and you're able to take my words, and you're able to take this living word, and you're able to transform us so that we don't leave in the same way that we came um, so, God, would you just be faithful? Would you do that? Would you just make us excited um, about Jesus, about living our lives for him? Would you help us, Lord, just to listen, um, to be present to you, um, just to get rid of any distractions um, and to sit at your feet now um, as we look at this wonderful, wonderful letter um, of 1 Peter. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, we're going to look at an overview of the book of 1 Peter. Let me just ask a, a question. So let's say um, that you are opening up a book of the Bible for the very first time, or actually maybe not even a book of the Bible. Maybe you're just reading anything like, you know, a book or, a, you know, a poem or an essay. What, what is the first question that you should be asking yourself in order to crack open that book to figure out what it's, you know, what it's about? Just shout out some ideas. I'm not looking for necessarily the, the perfect answer. Okay, so the question of who wrote it. Okay, that's a good one. A genre? What was that, Stephen? What about reading? Oh, what are you reading? Yeah, right. Okay, that's a good question. So, like, is this a letter? Is this a, you know, um, a letter, a, a gospel? Uh, yeah. Does the cover look good? Mine does not, actually. I got a lot of tape on this thing. Uh, anything else? Who is it written to? Okay, so audience, yeah, that's right. What does Bible stand for? I didn't didn't think it stood for anything. Uh, or what is it? What is the, the cheesy thing people say? Basic instructions before leaving Earth. Uh, you know, actually, thank goodness that the Bible is a whole lot more than instructions. If the Bible were just a book of instructions that we all had to obey and follow to uh, to uh, stand before a holy God, then uh, none of us would would pass the test. Uh, it's more than instructions, it's actually good news. Uh, anything else? Anything else? The things that you want to ask yourself when you're cracking open a new book of the Bible for the first time. Where was it written? Okay, yeah, all really good answers. You want to know those things? 
Uh, let me actually put forward um, a, another alternative answer to this question. So I would put to you that one question you want to ask yourself right away is, has the author told you why he's written this book? Has he told you what the purpose of the book is? Now, uh, not every single book of the Bible will do this for you, but check out what happens when it, it does. Uh, let me just give you an example from the Gospel of John. Now, John, he's a very nice guy because at the end of his Gospel, look what he does. This is John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He tells you why he's wrote, written the book. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what does this tell you? Well, first of all, this tells you that John has written his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's his purpose. He's saying, you know, hey, look, I've met Jesus. He's changed my life, and I've written this book so that through it you might meet him too. So, you know, first thing you find out, that's his purpose. Second thing you find out is that this statement tells you that the way that John's going to do that is by recording some signs. Signs is another word for miracles. So he's going to record for you a bunch of Jesus' miracles. And what he's telling you here is he's saying, look, Jesus did all of these different miracles, but I've specifically chosen to write about these ones so that you might believe. So, putting all that together, John's purpose is to help people believe in Jesus, and the way he's going to do that is by recording certain of Jesus' miracles or signs. Now, check this out. This is so cool. If you go back to the beginning of the book, what would you expect to find John focusing on? Well, lo and behold, you go to chapter one, and actually we're going to skip chapter one because it's kind of the prologue. It's like it introduces all the cast of characters. You've got John the Baptist, you've got Jesus, you've got some of the disciples. Chapter two. You get to chapter two, and what is chapter two about? Chapter two is Jesus' very first miracle. Anyone remember what Jesus' first miracle is? Water and wine, right. Now check out what happens here. If you go to, to that chapter, look at verse 11. John tells us in verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, true to what he told us, he's given us, given us a sign. And what he's shown us is that like as a result of Jesus revealing himself through that miracle, people put their faith in him. So there's the first sign. Now, uh, pop quiz. Anyone know what the second sign is in John's gospel? Picking on all you Bible students here. We have a couple of those. We got Naomi back from Calvary Bible School. I'm not trying to put you on the spot there, Naomi. We got David Shakratov somewhere here. He's a Bible student alum. So uh, the second sign, if you flip over to John chapter 4, this is John 4, 54. This is where Jesus heals the official son. Now check this out. Jesus says the sign, and he says, this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed. And look at the verse right before. It says, the boy's father and all his household believed. Now isn't this cool? Like John has told you this is a book about signs, the purposes so that you can believe. And then he, just, he holds your hand and he walks you straight through the whole book. Pretty cool. Do you see how once you know what the purpose statement of the book is, the whole thing just cracks open and it all begins to make sense. And uh, now, now after this, John doesn't actually continue to point out, you know, oh, here's sign number three, here's sign number four, here's sign number five. He, he kind of expects that after two of them, you'll kind of get the idea and you can find them for yourself. 
But uh, sure enough, each time one of these signs comes around in almost every instance, like there's some kind of reaction to Jesus where people either see his glory and they believe in him or they reject him. And in fact, you can walk through each one of those signs that tells you a different thing about who Jesus is. You know, the first, uh, or, you know, the, the, the second sign here, for example, you know, Jesus heals this guy from something like 20 miles away, shows that he's Lord over distance. You know, that, that you can be praying a prayer right here in the sanctuary of Harborview Fellowship in Gig Harbor, Washington, and you can be praying for someone as far away as, as uh, the, the place that Allison and Katie were talking about in Mexico. It's just as powerful because Jesus is Lord over distance. Or, you know, the, the sign where he walks on water shows that he's Lord over creation. Every one of those gives you something true about Jesus so that you can believe in him. So knowing the purpose statement opens up the entire book. Now the question is, what about 1 Peter? Has Peter told us why he's written his book? It's not a rhetorical question if anyone is feeling brave. Any, uh, any uh, sleuthing Bible readers who uh, might be able to find where Peter gives us a hint of why he's written the book? I'm, just, I'm not going to give you enough time to actually figure it out. You have to go through and read the whole thing yourself, which you don't have time for. Let me just cheat, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> Look at the very end of the book. If you go to the very end of the book, in chapter 5, verse 12, this is what he says. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that is a summary of this entire letter. So first of all, what Peter's telling us is that, number one, his purpose is to encourage. And of course, you know, this makes sense. We found out last time that uh, these are a bunch of people that he's writing to who, who are in the middle of persecution. You know, they're, they're suffering. In fact, uh, he even calls what they're going through a fiery trial. Um, and, you know, if I were going through a fiery trial, I would want what this letter gives me. You know, this is real, lasting, true encouragement to get them through this. Uh, but Peter also has a second purpose, and that's to testify that this is the true grace of God. Now, the first thing that you know, probably should cross our minds when you see this is like, well, how on earth can this be true? Because the whole context of the letter is that you know, these guys are suffering, they're, they're being excluded by people because they think of them as weird Christians, they're being rejected. You know, how is it that God can love you and yet you can still suffer? How, how can that be? And yet what Peter's saying, like he's saying the purpose of this whole letter is for them to realize that their suffering is compatible with God's amazing grace. And that's why what Peter's doing here is so, it's so cool. It's, really, it's pretty profound, actually. What he's doing is he is reinterpreting what the good life looks like. He's reinterpreting what the good life looks like. Now, you know, the gospel, the gospel is kind of like a set of goggles, you know, it's not just something that you believe to become a Christian and then you move on from it to more mature, you know, sophisticated things. The gospel, it's, it's everything. It's not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. And so, so, you know, it, it's like a set of goggles. When you put the gospel on and, and you make that the center of your life, it changes everything. It changes everything that you, in like how you see your identity, how your, your behavior, your relationships, your work, your hopes, your dreams, your goals. The gospel changes everything. And so when Peter tells you that he's written to testify what the true grace of God is, he, he's showing us what the good life looks like through gospel goggles. And I think there's a picture. Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, look, the reality is 
the thing that the culture is trying to sell you is, is, is snake oil. The culture says that the good life is all about comfort and success, personal fulfillment. And, and, and if you think about it, like, what is that life really about at the bottom of it all? At the bottom of, all, of it all, that kind of life is really just about control. It's about you being in control of your own life so that you can call the shots, so that you can maximize your pleasure, and so, so that you can kind of insulate yourself from, from pain. You are the center of your universe. And Peter says that that is a big, fat lie, that that is not what the good life is. I mean, guys, look at these words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying that is the good life. Or look at these words. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to, serve, to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is saying, what Peter is saying, is that the good life, the abundant life, is a suffering life. It's a life of self-denial. It's a life, it's a life of carrying your cross. It's, it's a life of laying down your life for the sake of other people. It's a, it's a life where instead of you being the center of your universe, it's Jesus is the center of your universe. That is what the good life looks like. Some, I, I want to be bold here. There are people who are here tonight, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, seriously, but there, there are people here tonight who are living like fools. And the reason you're living like a fool is because you're pursuing things that do not last. You know, things like worldly fame, worldly comfort, you know, other people's approval, and look, one day, every single one of those things is going to be taken from you. And you're going to find out that the history books of heaven look enormously different than the history books of earth. The people who are going to be famous in heaven are probably going to be people we've mostly never heard of. Because instead of pursuing the spotlight, they were willing to serve Jesus in obscurity. You know, instead of pursuing upward mobility, they were willing to accept downward mobility for Jesus' sake. Comfort and control was not the center of the, of the universe for them. It was the glory and honor of Jesus. You know, it was Jesus who said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul? And the answer is, it doesn't. You know, all that does is it makes you a fool. It makes you a fool. And he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Don't live like a fool. Peter does not want us to live like fools. And that's why his whole book is a book that it's trying to expose the lie of the American dream. It's a book that says, you know, it's a book that says the good life that our culture is selling you, it's a total sham. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. You know, instead, like the, the, the real definition of the good life is a life of following Jesus. And that's going to mean that there's going to be good times, there's going to be hard times, there will be suffering. But, but there's no way to truly follow Jesus without that because if Jesus suffered, then what do you think that'll mean for us who suffer? And, you know, and here's the other thing about this. Like, the other th the thing about this is that, you know, look, it doesn't matter, like, who you are. It doesn't matter how much you, you, you control the circumstances in your life or you try to control the circumstances of your life. You know, life is hard. Every single person who lives in this world is going to suffer. If you're going to suffer, why not suffer for Jesus' sake? 
You know, like, why not suffer in order to, to, to gain treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth? So Peter's trying to tell you, like, don't buy the snake oil. <laughs> don't buy the snake oil. And, and that then brings me to just a couple of themes that he uses in this book to do that. I want to show you four themes that, that tie into this bigger purpose of, of trying to give a new definition to what the good life is. So the first one, I already mentioned, that's the theme of suffering. One of the major themes in this book is the theme of suffering. But it's also the theme of glory. Because all throughout this book, what Peter tells you is that if you're following Jesus, there will be times where you suffer for a little while. You know, never as an ends unto itself, but because we can look to Jesus, who, who died on the cross, who suffered on the cross, and then rose again. Like the pattern for, for, for us who are following him is suffering that gives way to glory. Suffering that gives way to glory. Now, now Peter's, you know, a, a wise guy and, and, and recognizes that it's not as though there's anything automatic about that. Like, it's not as though suffering just kind of automatically turns into glory because, you know, as we probably all would recognize, suffering can make you better, but it also can make you bitter. Uh, you know, so for example, this is a great little punchy quote from one of, one of the more famous Christian thinkers, a guy named St. Augustine. And uh, listen to this. He says, the same fire causes straw to smoke and gold to gleam. So the same trouble worsens the wicked and improves the good. Consequently, the difference between the wicked and the good is not what they suffer, but the way they suffer. So it can make you bitter or it can make you better. And the difference in the way you suffer is actually the third theme of this book. It's God's grace. Uh, third theme of the book is God's grace. And, 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 and basically, the reason why grace is so important is that that's how you're able to look at life and look at suffering through the lens of the gospel. You know, if you look at suffering in life as though this is a punishment from God, that God is mad at you or something, then, then I mean, that'll leave you in a heap. <laughs> but if, but if suffer, imagine if suffering were actually a means of knowing God, of experiencing God. Then, of course, you know, it wouldn't mean that it wouldn't be painful. But alongside the pain, there'd be a joy. A joy that nothing can take away. Because you'd realize that suffering is actually a grace disguised. It's a grace disguised. And that's what Peter's trying to do in the letter. He's trying to show you that when you approach it the right way, uh, you can approach trials and suffering as actually a hidden gift from God. And let me, let me just show you a couple examples of this in the letter. So look at this. This is chapter 2, verse 19. It's crazy. He says, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. He says it's actually like an expression of God's grace. Or look at this. This is chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So there it is again, like suffering and grace right next to each other. And that's actually the very thing that was all, you know, that was what last week was all about. Um, kind of a little introduction to this whole theme. Where like in the first part of the chapter, what does he do? He gives you three reasons uh, that suffering can be considered a grace disguised. Go back and listen to that. Um, I won't go into it now. So you can see the theme throughout the whole book. And actually, uh, check out this. This is a little outline of the book. You know, uh, I'm not going to really go over this, but if you're like a, a note taker, you want to take some notes or snap a photo of that, there's an outline for the whole book of how like God's grace goes together with salvation, God's grace and submission, God's grace and suffering. Uh, it just kind of breaks down where uh, this book's going to go. And in fact, uh, if you go one slide further there, that's where we are tonight. 
So, um, grace is theme number three. It's, when, it's like through reliance on God's grace. It's through a recognition of God's grace that, that allows us to go through trials and come out better rather than bitter on the other side. Uh, and now finally, there's one last theme in the book. And the last theme I want to point out to you is the theme of evangelism. Uh, so if you think about stars, right? Like stars shine most brightly in a sky that is most dark. And in the same way, in 1 Peter, it's actually suffering that's the context in which Christian character shines. So all throughout the book, there are these statements about, the, about how the way you live and the way you suffer can actually point people to Jesus. Like you can do evangelism through suffering. Now, uh, let me just give you a couple of quick examples of this. Uh, so one example here, this is chapter 3, verse 1. Now, by the way, this is a passage about husbands and wives. I know there's lots of, you know, things that uh, could be talked about that are controversial. I'm not going to talk about those things. I'm just going to read the verse. Uh, but listen to this. It says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So, you know, the, the, the main idea is that if, you know, if you're a Christian wife and you're married to a non-believer, she can actually win her husband over to Christ by the Christ-like way that she lives. Or uh, here's another one. This is chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And again, the idea is like, if people mock you for living as a Christian, and if you respond to that in a Christ-like way, then even though they may not necessarily realize who Jesus is in that moment, what you're doing is you're leaving a witness to them. You know, one person who is a perfect example of this is the Apostle Paul. So this verse says that you know, they're, they're going to see the way that you react. They're going to see the Christ-like way that you're living. And then one day when God gives them a visitation, when Jesus walks past their life, that will lead them to give glory to God. Like they'll have seen what a real Christian is through you. And they might just have an encounter with Jesus someday when he chooses to kind of walk past their life. The person who really understood that was Paul. You know, think about how Paul, before he's a Christian, he's standing there watching this guy named Stephen get martyred. And as Stephen's getting martyred, he literally is praying forgiveness for the people who are stoning him to death. And Paul's there watching this. And, and you know, who knows what was going through Paul's mind at that moment. But I can't help but wonder whether those were some of the seeds that got planted on that day that later came to bear fruit when Paul received a day of visitation on the Damascus Road. So the way that you live, the way that you suffer, even that can point people to Jesus. And so evangelism, that's actually a fourth theme of this book. So you've got there uh, an outline of 1 Peter. You've got, uh, next slide, four themes in 1 Peter. And uh, we're actually going to now dive into the, the passage. And, and the, the theme that we just looked at of evangelism is actually a great lead into that. Because what this passage is all about, is it, 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 what it's saying is that if you've actually met Jesus, then that demands a whole new way of living. It's impossible to know Jesus and stay the same. That God's going to change you, and he's going to change you in a way that is, <laughs> that, that is noticeable to the people around you, that leads to your life being a powerful witness to the people around you. 
So look, look for some of those themes as I'm going to read this passage now. Uh, if you have a Bible, follow along here. This is uh, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read here, let's see, verses 13 through 21. You guys ready? Are you really ready? Okay, you guys are really ready. Allison said so. Okay, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, the pa- th- th- this, this part of Scripture is a passage about holiness. Holiness. Now, this has got to be one of the stuffiest, you know, like most religious-sounding, kind of soppy, wet, and boring, puddle-on-the-floor kind of words out there. But what I want to try to, like, change your mind on tonight, if, if this is you, is that holiness, holiness in the Bible is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The reason for that is that, like, we live in a world that's just completely saturated with just junk. You know, there was a couple uh, weeks ago here when there was a speaker at Thrive who brought up the statistic that by the time, uh, uh, by, by the time age 21 rolls around, the average American male has played 10,000 hours of video games. Now, I have played video games in my life, but I just don't know that 10,000 hours of video games is going to necessarily enrich um, life. Or, you know, I recently came across a book, and this, this book was just, like, so heartbreaking, even just to thumb through. A book about how social media is just completely destroying the lives of, te- particularly, this was a book about teenage girls. And just, like, how, like, the world of social media is just absolutely vicious, violent, uh, sexualized. You know, or, or, like, there's the culture of instant gratification we live in. You know, you can have just about anything, anytime, touch of a button, and yet, like, what, what kind of comes along with all of that? It's anxiety, it's fear, it's depression. You know, like, you can have a really good designer $4 coffee and then a side of, of, of like, despair, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Like, that's what our modern culture gives you. <laughs> really good coffee and a whole lot of mental health crises. You know, like, there's so much junk in our culture. And we're just, like, gobbling it up taking it in and and like you can't do that without those things changing you and 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 man i think we're now getting to the point where like you know the research is coming back about like what social media has done to our brains and it's just it's kind of gross you know i this is a little hypocritical of me as i was writing this talk i got convicted so i deleted my facebook and my instagram 
And then today I had to go online and do something for Thrive. And so I had to log back into my Facebook. And they sent me this email. It's like, oh, welcome back to Facebook, Michael. And I was like, oh, my gosh. They're probably, like, laughing at me behind their little computer screen. Like, this guy didn't even last 24 hours, and now he's back on Facebook. But, hey, it was Facebook for Jesus, okay. But, look, our, our souls are not meant to run on junk. Our souls are not meant to run on junk. They're meant to run on Jesus, and the word holy here is, all that word means is it means set apart. And it means that we're meant to live lives that are set apart for Jesus. Like our lives are meant to be connected to him. They're meant to be rooted in him. They're meant to be nourished by him. A holy life is a life that in every way has been set apart to Jesus. It's a life that says, I'm going to push away distractions. I'm going to get rid of all the junk I'm going to simplify and purify my life of everything else so that Jesus, Jesus overflows out of my life. And this is why a holy life is a beautiful, beautiful life. It's a life that overflows with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, who wouldn't want a life that overflows with those things? That is what a holy life looks like. You know, it's not this kind of life where, you know, you're living in your little Christian ghetto, you know, and, and you, you only read the Bible and you don't have any other books in your house because, oh, you know, I don't want to let these worldly ideas come in here. Blah, blah. You know, the, back when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, they were trying to figure out how do, they, how do we market this movie to Christians. And so they, they like got in contact with this like expert on Christian culture. And the, guy, the expert guy said, well, you know, they're, they're, there's one really big thing you need to know about Christians. And that's that there's three different kinds. There's bunker Christians, you know, who are living in their little bunker. And, and they think that, man, you know, like we just got to like hide away from the world. And everything is dark and gloomy and and we just got to, you know, kind of hide in our little survivalist bunker until Jesus comes back. There's bunker Christians. And then on the other side, there's blender Christians who have become so like the world, you can't even tell that they know Jesus at all. But then in the middle, there's builder Christians. And builder Christians are the ones who do what Jesus did, who are not of the world, but they're in the world. You know, the water is not supposed to be in the ship, but the ship doesn't do a lot of good unless it's in the water. And builder Christians who straddle that, that line, they're the ones who, who bring life and healing and change and, 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 and Jesus to a lost and broken world. They're bridge builders. That's what holiness is. It's not the bunker mentality. It's certainly not the blender mentality. It's the builder mentality. And so holiness is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and what First Peter is about in this, this little section we read is it gives us two ways to approach that. First of all, it tells you that holiness is something that, that happens not by our power, but by God's power. And then it tells us ways that God motivates us to pursue that. So if you were to take those two things and, and turn them into a nice little alliteration, for all you note takers out there, I'm on your team. Uh, here, here they are. So number one, uh, it tells you something about the divine might for holiness. And then it, uh, second of all, tells you something about the divine motives. So uh, the first one, divine might. Uh, you know, so like a lot of you, um, you know, I, I think most of us here are in our 20s. I guess Thrive goes from 18 to 28, so we might have some uh, 
is that like considered teenagers? Are you like, are you still a teenager when you're 19? Yeah, okay, okay. So, but okay, I'm, I'm assuming here that we have a number of like 20 something. So, like probably many of, of you guys, um, I spent a lot of my, my 20s, I was in school, going to school. And uh, there was one particular season of my school life where my job for, for several weeks, I just had to write these essays. Except these were, these were like not just your average essays, these were special essays where uh, what they did is they, they gave you this huge, like just this big, enormous open-ended questions. No guidelines, you know, no, no requirements, no rubric or anything. And then they just give you this big, long list of books that you might want to consider reading. You know, and these are not like little books, these are like big books. And uh, you had one week to go away and write this brilliant, you know, thought-through, well-researched academic essay, and you had to defend it in front of a big scholar guy. So, so and, and, like, the, the questions they give you, they really were just huge. You know, you, you didn't actually, I didn't actually write on any of these topics, but let me just give you an example. These are the kinds of questions that these essays were about. Uh, so, I, I kid you not, listen to this. One question is, <clears throat> should we bring back woolly mammoths from the dead? Uh, <laughs> Some of these are pretty interesting, actually. Did the Greeks believe in their gods? You're like, where do you even begin to answer that? I don't know. Uh, does the principle of fairness provide an adequate justification for political obligation? I don't even know what that means. Um, this one's pretty good. Is the future Asian? Any Asians here tonight? Uh, and then uh, this one. <laughs> this is so great. This is a serious academic essay topic. Would you rather be a vampire or a zombie? <laughs> Don't ask me. I don't know. So, so anyway, like, I had to do this. This was my life for several weeks. And, and the thing was, there was almost no guidance. You know, the teachers didn't really help you. You just need no help, no nothing, no strings attached. You just had to go do it. Now, is that what God is like when it comes to holiness? Like, is God the kind of God who just, like, turns you loose and just kind of says, you know, just go figure it out on your own. You know, go read up all the, all, all, all the books on holiness and, and, and just figure it out. Figure it out. And thank goodness the answer to that question is no. That is not the kind of God we serve. Like, we don't become holy by just going away and figuring it out on our own. But what this passage is saying is that the reason we can become holy is because God is holy. Because God is holy. So look at this, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And the thought here is pretty basic. First is saying that we're, we're God's children. And children bear a likeness to their father. So when this verse says that we are God's children, it's saying the reason we can live holy lives is because God, our father, is holy. And, and think about this. Like, for God to be holy means that he's completely set apart from sin he is the one who's perfect love. He is the one who's perfect joy. He's the one who's perfect peace, perfect patience, perfect kindness, perfect gentleness, perfect goodness, perfect self-control, perfect faithfulness. You know, he, he's, he's the perfection of all of those things. And, and when that God becomes our father, then his spirit links up with our spirit and it starts to change us. And we begin to take on his likeness. So actually, I want you to right now just pause for a minute. I want you to think about um, some kind of area in your life where you really want to see yourself change. You know, maybe you're, you're saying like, man, I really wish that I could be more patient. You know, I, I wish I weren't such an impatient person. Or man, I wish I didn't really struggle with anger. Um, 
You know, if you're feeling brave, shout out some things. You know, like what would your change project be if there could just be kind of one thing you were to zero in on? Yeah, okay, anger, yeah. Your tongue, yeah, oh. yeah. Trust. What was it? Reading, yeah. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, what kind of change project you, you and, and uh, you, you kind of find yourself focusing on. But, but the thing is, you're never going to be able to change on your own. You're never going to be able to change on your own. You're, you can't just, like, snap a finger, tell your heart, like, just change. You know, it's like the video we showed here once a long time ago for another talk where the guy's, like, uh, the, the counselor is sitting in the counseling office, and the woman comes in and says, Doctor, doctor, you'll help. I'm afraid of being buried in a box. And the guy just looks at her and says, Stop it! You know, just stop feeling that way. <laughs> you know, th- that's a little bit what it's like to try to change in your own strength. And the reason for that is because if you're, if you're stuck in whatever those patterns are for long enough, and you can't get free, you know what happens? What happens is your identity begins to shift. You, know, you begin to kind of have this inner monologue that says, you know, I'm just an angry person, or I'll always be a porn addict, or, you know, my life is so messed up because I'm just a loser. And if so, then it's going to be almost impossible to ever see change because your identity has become that thing. But if God has adopted us into his family, then we're not fighting for an identity as a holy, obedient child of God. We're operating from that identity. And that's a huge shift. It's a huge shift. If you're fighting for that identity, you're going to be insecure about ever being enough. You're going to hate God because you're going to imagine God as a God who looks over your shoulder to critique all the things you're doing wrong. And you're not going to care about really living a holy life at all because who would ever want to follow a nagging, critical God who just makes you feel insecure all the time? I mean... (laughs) That doesn't sound like the life that's truly life. But if you're fighting from your identity, then there's a security there. You know, Jesus has already earned you that identity on the cross. Jesus has already paid what it took to adopt you into his family. And he's given you his love. (laughs) You'll want to know and you'll want to love the beautiful God who so richly sacrificed for you. And you'll want to live a holy life because, oh my gosh, who would not want to be like that God? So that's why the very first word that we read tonight is the word therefore. Verse 13, therefore, because of everything that's gone before, you know, it's all the stuff in the first half of the chapter about like Jesus dying and Jesus rising again and and giving us a living hope and an inheritance and like Jesus, 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 all the things that he has done. Therefore, because of who he is, because of what he has done, live your lives in response to that. Live your lives in response to that. We can be holy because God is holy. And it says we look to our identity in him and we rem- like just remember that like God loves you. God cherishes you. God cares for you. God delights in you. That's how you become more like him. His might makes us holy. So the first thing in this passage, there's a divine power, there's divine might that is how we become like Jesus. So hopefully, you know, that just once and for all settles the fact that holiness, it's God's work. It's God's work. But second thing, 
that, that, what that doesn't mean, therefore, is that, you know, our response to that is just to kind of sit back, you know, relax, be apathetic. Like, no, God, God hasn't just made us just to be a bunch of passive, robotic, you know, kind of spiritual cyborgs. He has respected us enough to give us responsibility, to give us a will. And what, what Jesus longs for is that we would respond to his pursuit of us by us pursuing him. Like he, the, the call of the Bible is to pursue a life of holiness and to pursue a life of holiness even if that requires blood and sweat and tears. So just listen to this. This is, this is my favorite passage, favorite passage in the whole Bible. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to, obtain, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And do you see the kinds of words Paul is using here? I mean, he's saying like, Jesus, like there's nothing that could surpass the greatness of knowing Jesus. And he says, I want that so badly that I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to press on for it. I'm going to strain after it. That is not passive language. That is not passive language. Paul is saying, more than anything else, I, I am going to strive after that. And if you claim to know Jesus, and if he is not changing the way you live, then you need to examine your life and decide how well you really know him. Knowing Jesus means that your desires will change so that there will be this, this hunger and thirst to pursue him, to know his love more. You know, it's a little bit like going up the down escalator. You can't just be passive and sit there, or otherwise the escalator is just going to like bring you back down. You know, a number of years ago, actually, I think it was 11 years ago now, I don't know if anyone would remember this, but there was that, that story of this plane that, uh, that takes off and then like it has this engine failure like a couple of minutes after they take off. And, and the pilot is able to execute this perfect maneuver landing. He does this water landing on the Hudson River and all of the people on that plane survived. Not a single life was lost. And after this, you know, all of these people uh, who, 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 you know, all these observers of this are just like, how on earth did this guy do it? I mean, most uh, other instances of this, you know, the, the landing goes wrong. Everyone, you know, the, the plane falls apart. The people die. You know, why was, this, why was this pilot able to so perfectly execute this maneuver? Well, he's being interviewed on a, on a news show, and someone asks him, you know, how, how did he do it? And here's what his response was. He said, for 42 years... I've been making small, regular deposits in the bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, which is like, huh, that was yesterday. On January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. The reason those people survived is that that pilot was a trained pilot. And in the same way, there are some people in, who are going to be in heaven 
because you took the, seriously the pursuit of training for holiness. <laughs> Isn't it good news that like God is not, <laughs> he's not made us to be passive couch potatoes. Church is not a spectator sport. Like how amazing is it that God wants to give your life a purpose? God wants to give your life a purpose. There can be no greater purpose than aligning your life with God's purpose. God's purpose is to see people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every tongue standing before the throne worshiping him. That is the most beautiful scene that there could ever possibly be. And he wants to use your life for that. You know, don't buy the cultural snake oil. Don't buy the, there can be nothing greater than living for Jesus. It's not a passive thing. And so in the rest of this section, there are a couple of things that Peter gives you that isn't simply about the divine power for living a holy life. God has also given us divine motivation to pursue a holy life. And let me just, I'm going to walk verse by verse through this section and just point out four of them. The four of them are God's hope, God's word, God's judgment, and God's love. God's hope, God's word, God's judgment, and God's love. So first there's God's hope. Um, So look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now there's that word grace again. And how crazy is it that despite how much grace God has already given us at the cross by dying for us, do you see what this verse says? I mean, it literally says that there is more grace that he's going to give us. And when will that be? He says it will be when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, at his second coming. Now, that's a promise of hope. And hope changes everything. You know, imagine your boss comes to you and says, you know, look, I want you to take these widgets and screw them onto these wadgets. And I want you to do this for 60 hours a week for the next six months, and at the end of that, I'm going to pay you $10,000. I mean, if you heard your boss tell you that that was your job for the next six weeks, six months, you'd probably crumple into a heap on the floor. You know, you'd probably be a pretty lazy and unmotivated worker on the job. But if your boss comes to you and says, look, I want you to take these widgets, I want you to screw them onto these wadgets, I want you to do that for 60 hours a week for the next six months, and at the end of that time, I'm going to pay you $10 million. I mean, you'd like, you'd like jump through the roof. <laughs> you'd say, oh my gosh, you're the most amazing boss ever. You know, sure, screwing widgets on the wadgets, that's mind-numbingly boring, but $10 million, like I'll do that for 10 years. You know, and you'd be the most highly motivated, highest performing worker ever. Now, what's the difference? It's the same job, same time commitment, same everything. The difference is there's a different hope on the other side. You know, Paul has been called the apostle of faith. John's been called the apostle of love. Peter's been called the apostle of hope. Because everywhere in this letter, there's hope, and it changes everything. And the reason it changes everything is because outlook determines outcome. You know, just listen, listen to this. This is the story that Jesus told. And it's a story about how, like, if you actually have a hope of him coming again, it's going to change the way you live. Jesus tells the story. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time 
And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what does Jesus call someone who supposedly is serving him, who is living in an unholy and worldly way? He calls him wicked. And why, why, you know, why is, the, why is this person in the story unholy? It's because he's ignored that his master is coming again. Outlook determines outcome. And if you're living with a joy that, like, Jesus is coming back, like, it's going to affect what, what this life now looks like. You're going to be excited to live for him. You'll want to please him. And, and let me just um, you know, give you one kind of more nuanced reason for why that is. One reason for why that is is that the second coming is a reminder that this world isn't home. That our home is with Jesus. And Peter knows this. Did you notice that he calls Christians strangers? This is verse 17. Or uh, a little later on he calls us aliens and strangers. You know, not like these kinds of aliens, but... Like, you know, you don't belong here. You're a foreigner. An alien and a stranger, that's someone who's passing through a place that isn't home in order to go home. And uh, one person who probably is one of the best models of this in the whole Bible is the the guy named Abraham. You know, 1 Peter is kind of like the Abraham story of the New Testament. Uh, You know, think about this. Abraham, he's he's a city slicker. You know, he's a guy from a place called Ur, which is sort of like the New York City of the ancient world. And God calls him to leave his city, to leave his language, leave his culture, leave his family, go to a completely little backwater country he's never even been to. You know, he doesn't know the language, doesn't know the culture. But instead of settling into a city like all the rest of the, 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 the pagan peoples around him, Abraham lives like a squatter. He, he lives in tents. And, and he's there worshiping this strange God that no one has probably ever heard of named Yahweh. And, and the reason that Abraham is living in this kind of weird way is because... As, as the book of Hebrews says, Abraham knew that this world wasn't his home. He was looking, it says for us, forward to the city with foundations whose author and builder is God. So Abraham was a guy who actually owned up to the fact that he was a stranger. And what that did is it gave him one of the most powerful witnesses for God in his day. You know, so remember when Abraham's wife dies and he needs a place to bury her, so he goes to his pagan neighbors and says, hey, you know, can you sell me this land? Look what he says. Look what he says. He says, I am an alien and a stranger among you. So he's owning the fact that he's an alien and a stranger. But then they come back to him and they say, sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. You know, what, what, what they're telling him is, look, you know, Abraham, we see your life. We see that you don't live like other people do. And through the way that you are living your life, we're getting a glimpse of the one true God. So that's Abraham. But think about, you know, sort of by way of contrast, remember his nephew, this guy named Lot? Lot is the opposite. He's attracted to living for this world, and he gives up his identity as an alien and as a stranger. And so in chapter 13, he pitches his tents near Sodom. In chapter 14, he's now living in Sodom. And then in chapter 19, he's actually sitting in the gateway of the city. This is where all the important people sat. And, you know, perhaps Lot's thinking to himself, you know, I actually know the one true God. So maybe if I become like Sodom, I can reach Sodom. But when push comes to shove, the people of Sodom laugh him out of town. They say, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. 
Lot's strategy of trying to reach the world by becoming like the world completely backfires. But meanwhile, Abraham has held on to his strangerhood. You know, he's walked in close relationship with God, and he has God's ear. And he's called a friend of God. And so while Lot's being laughed out of town, Abraham is at the same moment standing up before God on the mountaintop. And he's interceding with God on behalf of the righteous people in Sodom. And God listens. He spares them. Now, the question is, who has the true spiritual influence in that story? Is it Abraham or is it Lot? You know, if you try to reach the world by becoming like the world, if you say, you know, I'm going to compromise to climb the ladder to get to the top, you're going to have to compromise to stay at the top. And compromise only weakens people's ability to look at our lives and see a glimpse of Jesus. We're called to live as though this world is not our home, to have an eternal perspective. And the second coming is one way to remember that. So the first thing is God's hope. That's a huge motivation. Second thing, God's word. I'm going to move quickly because we've got to get, get through this here. But look at verses 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, you know, Bible, scripture is what, what that is. Be holy because I am holy. So God's word. It's another motivator for living a holy life because, you know, among other things, it's filled with examples of, to show the outcome of what a holy life looks like. You know, one that we just looked at is the example of Abraham and Lot. You know, who would you rather be in that story? The Bible shows you that, like, pursuing a holy life, pursuing Jesus, the outcome of that is just better. Or, you know, another example, the, 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 the word of God is filled with all kinds of promises that spur us on to walk with Jesus. So, like, look at this. This is from 2 Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Translation is that God has given us everything we need to live a life worthy of him. You know, saying like, he'll help you. He'll give you what it takes. Or this one, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is like one of the coolest promises in scripture that the work that God began in you, he will complete. He's faithful to do it. So, so God's word is a huge motivator. Uh, third motivator, this is God's judgment. This is in verse 17. It says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. So uh, for this one, uh, we have a competition. Um, my, my, my competition question is, who here um, would say that they have the most boring job ever? Now, boring doesn't necessarily mean bad, you know, because sometimes, like, it means you don't have to work very hard if your job is super boring. But, like, you know, make a case. Why, you know, make a case for why your job is the, is the, the most boring. Any, uh, I see some hands. Uh, Brendan, what, what's, uh, <laughs> the same thing every day. Drew, uh, you had your hand raised? Same same thing every day? Okay. It, it, raise your hand if you have a job kind of like that. Oh, boy, man. <laughs> and he gets yelled at. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, for, for those of you who are, I don't know, unfortunate, fortunate, whatever it may be, to have a boring job, one of the things this verse actually says is that, that you can have a boring job and still have it have value. And the reason for that is that God will judge each man's work. 
So in other words, like the way you live in this life matters. The way you do your work matters. The way that you act around other people matters. Um, because the Bible says that God is actually going to come and reward those for, reward us for how we've lived. And, uh, you know, this is kind of one of those areas where it's like, well, man, how does that work with God's grace? You know, isn't everything that we do that's good, everything that's praiseworthy, isn't that just simply like God's grace working through us? How could he reward us for that? Um, and my profound, brilliant theological answer to how those things can go together is, I don't know. Uh, I just know that the Bible says it, um, that somehow in this paradoxical way, like God even rewards us by his grace. So like, look at the, a couple of these verses. I'm going to skip down to just the very last one here for the sake of time, but... Look at this. This is in the Bible. It says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to re- so that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, you know, this is not referring to salvation or lack thereof. You know, the rewards here are sort of like a family affair where somehow God's going to reward us by his grace for how we lived in this life. But look, that should motivate us. It should motivate us. Um, and of course, the ultimate motivation is Jesus. You know, it's not the rewards because Every crown that he gives us, we're just going to cast back down at his feet anyway. But nevertheless, the third divine motive here is in this passage is actually God's judgment. And then just one last one, and that's God's love. Um, so just one more time, look at verses 18 through 21. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. You know, so the the kind of the the previous verse we looked at, kind of this idea that like, well, God doesn't show favoritism, he doesn't play favorites, he doesn't save people because he's got like a favorite race or a favorite skin color or a favorite family background. He saves all people by the blood of God of Jesus, by what Jesus did on the cross. And so if you were to paraphrase these verses, you, know, you could maybe say it's a little bit like this, that in your old mindset, you got in with God by impressing him with your piety or your pigment, you know, your skin color, your parentage. But don't you know that those things are garbage compared with what really saves you, and that's the precious blood of Jesus. And this is saying that God has paid the highest possible price to buy us, to buy us back from sin. You know, like, if you find something that's, like, really, really desirable, you know, you might be willing to shell out, like, you know, a couple hundred bucks on something. You know, for me, usually things that I shell out that kind of money on is books. Isn't that terrible? But, you know, it all, it's beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You know, like, doesn't matter what it is. You know, everyone has their own little things that they like, you know, and you're willing to pay money for that because it's desirable, it's valuable. Did you know that God does not love you? God did not die for you because he looked into your heart and said, wow, so desirable, so beautiful. Like, oh, you know, I'd be really, really lucky to have this person on my team. Paul says, I know that in in myself there dwells no good thing. The amazing miracle of the love of Jesus is that he loved us even though there was nothing lovable to love. And he paid the highest possible price to buy us back so that we could be in his family. I mean, wouldn't you want to know and to love a God like that? There is no other place in the universe where you can find that kind of love. You know, imagine one day that you're at your house and a guy comes and knocks on your door and you answer the door. You're like, who are you? (laughs) 
And the guy just says, well, I paid your debt. And you say, okay, thanks. What are you talking about? You know, you're going to respond to this guy pretty differently depending on what he says. You know, if he, if he says, I've paid your $50 phone bill, you, you, know, you might write him a thank you card. But if he, if you, if he says, you know, I paid your, your $500,000 mortgage, your house payment, like you're going to fall at this guy's feet and want to worship him. Jesus Christ has paid the highest possible price to love us. That's what it's talking about here when it says the precious blood of Christ. You can't put a worth on that. And man, if that's what he has done, if that's the kind of love of God, then, then that is going to like compel you. It's not going to be like, oh, you know, I have all this guilt. And so I have to like out of guilt serve God, out of guilt, you know, change, live my life for God. Like, no, you're going to be like, I want nothing more than to know this God, to be with this God, because look how big his heart is. God's love is the greatest motivator of all. The love of Christ compels us. So you have four motivations, God's hope, God's word, God's judgment, and God's love. And just as I close here, um, can I just pray for us? And, and, and I'm going to pray, but I want you and your heart to kind of join me in this prayer. And, and you know, if you want to, like, get down on your knees, if you want to, like, uh, just do anything that kind of puts you in the posture of just coming before God in humility tonight, uh, I wanna pr- what I'm going to pray is I'm going to pray that, that we have a hunger and a desire to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. That we wouldn't just be kind of passive pew potatoes, but that we would actually like have a, a purpose and a passion to be pursuing Jesus as he's pursued us. Okay, so I'm gonna pray that. And I just want to invite you to join me in that as we do. Jesus, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you are matchless in love and joy and all of the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, thank you that there is no higher joy, there's no higher purpose uh, than to know you and to be with you. God, I pray that we wouldn't waste our lives. I pray that we wouldn't be deceived by a false version of what the good life really looks like. Would you give us a white hot fire to live our lives with you at the center? God, would you just give us a hunger and a discipline um, to chase after you even despite whatever blood, sweat, or tears that may require? Just what an honor and a privilege. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to see that there is no greater privilege than to be called um, to live a life worthy of you. Um, So, Lord, just thank you that um, that's the calling you've given us. Thank you that we don't do that in our own strength. Um, But, Lord, just, man, would you um, do whatever it takes um, to just see our hearts transformed, um, to want to know you and want to live for you and your purpose in our lives, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.